welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships that were able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with homelessness and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans, and widows. Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities that were torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities that faced epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. This is a quote from Rodney Stark, the sociologist who uh, wrote The Rise of Christianity. In this work, he traces the rise of this small marginal community called Christianity and how he answers the question, how did this small movement of less than 10,000 Christians at 100 AD, or 25,000 Christians at 100 AD, excuse me, become um, so, so powerful, such a powerful force that within 200 years, by three, 300 AD, nearly half of the Roman Empire, 25 million Christians existed. And he describes what Christianity looked like in the first few hundred years as a movement, a revitalization movement that made life more tolerable for the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That's the church. Are you with me? Hey church, it's Sunday. I'm so glad you're here. And yes, my hair is long. I I get it. I haven't cut it. I'm still going. I'm doing like a Nazarite theme. I don't know. It's been six months this weekend since COVID-19 shut everything down. Six months. Who would have thought? And I look at the world as I read the news and pay attention to things online, and it feels, it feels strange, doesn't it? The world that we know. It feels hostile. It feels divided. It feels like everything is now politicized. It doesn't matter what it is. It feels like there's a growing force that demands a public outrage while private lives remain indifferent, unmoved, and unchanged. I see it. You see it. The world is hurting. The world is lost, and it's looking for answers which presents us, the church, Christians, with this incredible opportunity to reach the world, to to bring truth and answers and to help heal the brokenness. But when I look at the church right now, what I see is anger and hostility 
and debate and division and disunity like never before. We are divided and debating COVID-19 and masks and public gatherings. We're debating racism and systemic racism, politics. We're debating what is science and what is truth. The world we live in is a different world from six months ago. Or maybe it's just we're now more aware of the world we've been living in. And within our own community, within the Garden Church, I see the, the divide. I see the frustration. I'm hearing it. I see, I see people who are angry and disappointed that we have yet to gather and worship publicly. I understand your disappointment as we are navigating a global pandemic, trying our best as a leadership team to lead us as we follow Jesus' voice in our context in Southern California, in Long Beach. I get it. I see the debate. I see the frustration. I see the sides. And our job as the church is to live as an example to the grace and love of Jesus, to reflect the nature and character of Jesus to the world. That is our task. Our job is not to be right. Our job is to be like Jesus. Now, with that said, look, I, we are doing everything we can, actually, to have an outdoor gathering soon, so you will hear about this as we sure this up, um, but we are a church, and we can be church without public gatherings. Your worship has never been canceled, and let me just say this. If you are passionate about public worship, may your life reveal a private devotion to worship as well. Are you with me? So rather than getting caught up in the public outrage and the anger that is expected of people today, let us live with wisdom and humility and let us live with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we, whenever it looks back, like to come back as church, can we come back stronger than ever through the power of the Holy Spirit and more unified than ever through the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you with me? Now that's a long introduction to simply say, hey, we're gonna interrupt this sermon series, Revelation, which we'll get back to in a couple of weeks. I have a couple of uh, weeks I wanna talk to you about different things. I wanna talk about what it means to be the church. You see, we're about to celebrate our 11th year as a church. We've been a church plant and we're, cel- we're gonna celebrate 11 years in October. And I still believe that the church is called to look as beautiful and life-giving as Jesus does. You see, I believe when you look at Jesus, you see a good and beautiful God. And my hope and my prayers, which have been many for our church, the garden, is for us, us, our, our, our people, to live in such a way that puts that good and beautiful God on display. So over the last 11 years, um, we have held these values, these um, anchors, you could say, that have made us who we are. These are uh, concepts, these are values, this is a vision for who we are as a church and who we want to become. If you go to our website, you'll see this clever little line, and it says this, the heart of Garden Church is to make resilient disciples who are formed by the way and the word of God, empowered by the Spirit, released as courageous missional presence, as a courageous missional presence, and live together as a countercultural community. This is who we are. This is who we've been. 
This is who we are, and this is who we've been, and this is who we hope to become. And over the next several weeks, I want to talk about the church, who we are as the church, anchored in Scripture, anchored in Scripture, and anchored in the nature and character of Jesus. So to frame this mini-series, I want you to go to Acts chapter 19, which will, will be a very familiar text. We've read this text before. I've preached this text. But for me, Acts 19 has always been a bit of a visionary uh, storyline for me as a pastor, but for us as a church. You see, Acts uh, is an incredible story of a vibrant church community in an urban context. Um, And so Acts 19, verse 23, it says this, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. You see, the first church in the first century Roman Empire was called the way. It wasn't called church. It wasn't called a building. It wasn't a brand. It wasn't really considered a religious sect or group or, or a political group. It was a way of being. It was a lifestyle. It was characterized by decisions and habits and values that impacted daily life. That's what the Christians were. They were, the, they were living the way of Jesus. And so the Christian church, the way, caused a disturbance in Ephesus. The scriptures call it an uproar. That Ephesus, right after this, there, there's this uproar, a, a riot in the city because they are outraged at the church. They're outraged at what Christianity represents to their city. They're outraged um, at the Christians. And the Christians, they didn't have political power. They didn't have religious freedoms. They didn't have uh, certain things that we have today. Um, buildings and, and institutions and websites and brands and, and, and all the things that we've come accustomed to. No, 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 no. They didn't have any of that, but y- there was still outrage in the city. And the outrage comes because the church, the Christians, the way, um, they, they were producing a different kind of culture. They were living as a small minority community, producing a different culture, a counterculture to the way of Ephesus. Ephesus had a culture of its own. It had a way of being. And this culture, um, this Ephesian culture was being opposed by the Christians who lived in the first century Ephesus. Now, we've talked about Ephesus. Ephesus was the epicenter of Artemis worship, a a famous deity in the first century. It was a wealthy city, an influential city, a political city. It had over 250,000 people that lived in the city. They had an international trade market, uh, a marketplace where people from around the world would come to sell and buy their products. And uh, this way of existence in Ephesus This culture of Ephesus was being challenged by the early church. And Paul, if you remember, he shows up in the beginning of Acts 19 to discover 12 disciples. And and it says in Acts 19 that he, he... he, uh, the church, the 12 disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, and then what happens next is this, this epic journey of Paul um, leading the church into this place where it has influence as a small minority into the city itself. The church becomes this powerful po- force. So we're going to go back over the next several weeks and look at the, the origin story of the church in Ephesus. But for now, we're going to talk about 
what caused the riot at, at their, this moment in time. So Acts, Acts uh, 19, verse 17. And you, if you can't tell um, because your volume is turned down low, I'm very excited and passionate about what we're talking about. I think it's so appropriate and needed today. Acts chapter 19, verse 17. It says, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear in the name of the Lord. Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came out to be about 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So this is a moment in Ephesian history where the church begins to recognize that there was a way of participating in the cultural uh, idols of Ephesus that were no longer compatible for the church. So the church gives up its idols. The church decides that we can't live in two worlds at the same time. We can't be uh, participating in the Ephesian culture, worshiping idols and follow Jesus. So what we have to do is choose one or the other. And in Ephesus, men and women worshiped tons of different deities and gods and they had um, different uh, spells that would help them navigate the very various idols and gods that they had. There was this famous archaeologist who discovered um, the Ephesia Grammata, which is the Ephesian letters, where you would basically have access to these scrolls or spells to help you um, maneuver and navigate your life. And you see, what you can say is that an idol helps you control and navigate your life, right? So if you wanted to have a successful business, you would buy a spell or, or worship the business gods. Or, uh, or if you wanted uh, health and vitality, um, you would worship the, that deity. If you wanted wealth and finances, you would pour out spells and, and money and time and energy to those various deities. Deities, idols, were used then as they are now to control and manage the chaos of life. An idol today is anything that gives you meaning and significance and purpose or even identity outside of God. And so we worship idols through the giving of our time, our money, our resources, and energy. And the church decided and realized that the Ephesian culture was in opposition to the way of Jesus. So they no longer were willing to compromise their faith. They were no longer willing to compromise and participate in cultural liturgies of their day. They had to let go of what was culturally normal to fully embrace their faith in Jesus. And as a result, the economy shifted. The city began to notice the Christians aren't participating in Artemis worship. The Christians aren't participating in the festivals. The Christians aren't buying statues to Artemis anymore because there, are, there were particular cultural powers in the first century being disrupted by the church. The city felt the transformational power of Jesus and as a result, the city tried to reject it. But what instead happened is renewal. His, historically, <clears throat> we know that Ephesus by the third century was around 90% Christian. A few hundred years later, 90% of Ephesus became Christian. Eventually, 
the temple of Artemis is destroyed. And the church in Ephesus becomes the epicenter for Christianity around the world. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> but it starts with this story. This is, it, this is its origin story. This is its first love moment where it gives up idols to follow God fully. And this reveals something about the nature of the church and the church that I so desperately want us to be. You see, the church lived as a countercultural community. The church lived as a countercultural community. Community. I think we should stop right here, pause for just a moment, and ask yourself, what does it mean to live in community? Ask yourself this question. I just want you to write it down. When you think about community, when you think about the longing of being known by others and being a part of a community, what does it mean to you? You see, community is more than a group of friends. It's more than just a small group of fellowship time. Biblical community is covenantal relationships. Covenantal relationships held together by our commitment to Jesus as our king and his mission to the world. Community is about being redefined as a family where we don't get to decide who's in or out. Community means that our love for one another is not dependent upon us liking or agreeing with each other. Biblical community means you belong together because you belong to him before you even believe in him. What this means is community, in real biblical community, it doesn't matter if you vote for Trump or if you vote for Biden or somebody else in between or opt out as followers of Jesus. If who you vote for gets in the way of you being in loving community with people who are different from you, then you, brothers and sisters, are an idolater. You have failed to follow Jesus. We are first a community formed by the grace of Jesus, held together by his love and defined by who he says we are. We are a community. And there ha we are not going to conform to the same pattern of thinking, but we will be transformed into Christ-likeness. And if our politics, if our preferences, if our, our way of seeing the world, our philosophy, our, our, our lifestyle choices are getting in the way of belonging together, if it's creating disunity, then cut it out because you're not worshiping the right God. Right now, we need to be community. When we come to that table today and when we take communion, symbolizing what Jesus has done on the cross for us once and for all, we put everything else aside, all of our differences, everything else, and we say, you are my brother and you are my sister, first and foremost. No more debates, no more arguing about whether or not that's true because Christianity needs now more than ever unity among diversity. We are first unified under Jesus. Are you with me? as community. And there's so much, we've talked so much about this. So we are first a community held together, redefined by our, our, our connection to Jesus, that we are brothers and sisters together. And we are countercultural. Now, what do I mean by countercultural? I mean this. We find ourselves in a context that has a powerful culture that influences us. What's culture? Culture is the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, beliefs, practices, and relational boundaries. And we live in a context that produces culture. And we're shaped by the culture we live in. 
And this culture is coming at us in every direction. It's, it's shaped by our families. It's shaped by where the, the, the places we live, whether it's LA or Orange County. It's shaped by our neighborhood. It's shaped by our physical environment. It's shaped by our digital environments. It's shaped by the narratives we are sold every day um, through algorithms and artificial intelligence. We are being fed and formed into the image of our culture. Every Netflix show, every Amazon Prime show, every Disney Plus show, everything you watch, every news media out there is shaping and forming you into its image. And this is all part of what we develop in our culture. Culture is shaping us. Culture is the river we are all swimming in, and it is a powerful formation machine. Are you with me? Culture is forming us in its image. And if you look at our world, look at the image of our culture, you see it that it's forming us towards depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction, racism, corruption, loneliness, denial of truth, the denial of truth, misinformation, anger, outrage, cancel culture. We're living with a river that's shaping us into its own image and it doesn't look like Jesus. What, what, what we see in Acts chapter 19 and what we see in Ephesus is that the church became a counterculture because the culture of, of Ephesus was opposed to the way of Jesus. Um, and in the same way, I want to say this, we are not countercultural for the sake of being against culture. We are just for Jesus and his kingdom and his way that it requires us to live in response to Jesus, which means we have to turn from culture to live out a better culture. We have to turn away from a powerful influence formation machine, which is everything we wake up to, and choose to follow the way of Jesus. This is what we have to do as a community together. We must live such rich lives in the kingdom of God that it begins to produce a counter culture, a culture where the outside looking in says, I want to be like you because it's the church becomes a place where we're filled with joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control. One that is not trying to escape reality, but trying to ground ourselves in ultimate reality. Are you with me? One that doesn't need to, to seek to preserve itself and its self-interests, but a culture that chooses to die to itself to offer the ultimate way forward, which is self-sacrificial love. Are you with me, church? Never in my lifetime have I felt that, the, that there is a great threat to biblical Christianity like I've never seen. It's in the United States. And it's not what you think it is. It's not masked. Uh, it's, it, it's not this outright opposition to Christianity or biblical values. It's, it's found in good intentions. It's found in subtle whispers about religious freedom and secret agendas. You see, I think the public outrage within the church is revealing a lukewarm spirituality. You see, we must cultivate households of worshipers, not just gatherings. We must ferment in quiet prayer, not just organized prayer gatherings. We must embody the way of Jesus as a movement with a message that is revealed through the alternative life you live, that your values, your beliefs, your ideas of Jesus are grounded 
in your everyday decisions in life. When we talk about countercultural community, we need to talk about identifying the cultural idols that are alive and well in our own lives. We must choose to eliminate and no longer participate in the culture liturgies, the cultural idolatries that are alive and well today. Yeah, we might not buy statues for some deity like Artemis, but we definitely have cultural idols we worship, do we not? And for the sake of just generalization, I want to name a couple of those cultural idols that I see evident in our church, that I see evident in our Christianity. The first one is the self. We worship the idol of the self. Our culture has elevated the self as the ultimate God to worship. Your desires, your thoughts, your feelings, your truths are the center of the universe. Do what makes you happy. And therefore, you worship your body. You, your body is to be worshiped and explored and, uh, and celebrated without restraint at all. Just give in to those things. But this is an ultimate lie. It is the deity of our age and it must be challenged. You are not the center of the universe. You were made to worship the God who is at the center of our universe. We are obsessed with ourselves and our images and we curate these images and broadcast them on social media and we care about it. We care so much about it. We've become obsessed and even addicted. And what would it look like today if the church eliminated this idol, the idol of self? How might you become self-forgetful and less concerned about your physical or digital appearance and more concerned about living the way of Jesus in this world? The body, I, I don't know how to categorize this, but I, I put it as the body, sex and sexuality and appetites. This is another idol in our culture. We are obsessed, right, with pleasure and self-gratification we're obsessed with sex and sexuality and our, our preferences around these things. We, uh, we, we have uh, disembodied the body to be just parts of our soul, not holistically integrated into who we are as a soul. Our body is so much more than just the physical elements. And so uh, when we worship our body or appetites and sexuality, we consume, we drink, we satiate our lives with overindulgences and preferences and particularities. Do you know what I'm talking about? The church needs to challenge this and live with a new sense of sexual wholeness and purity. Dare I say, holiness. We are made to reflect Jesus with our body, with our sexuality, with our appetites. Our diet matters. Do we not know this? Our body is more than just a, bi a, a collection of biology or body parts. Sex is more powerful than just the act of, of two people coming together. We are called in this moment as a countercultural movement to redeem the power of sex and sexuality, to redeem the, the power of the things we consume, to redeem the physical characteristics of our soul and become holy, a movement that what would it look like to be a, a countercultural movement that, that, uh, that celebrates moderation, that celebrates um, purity and thoughtful consumption because uh, our bodies are more than what we eat. Uh, 
and what we consume matter, matters. It has significant impact on our soul, has impact on our, how we feel, it has impact on creation. Oh man, that's just two. The, um, the other thing we worship is power. And power in our culture comes in various different forms today. Power is found in knowledge and information, being on the right side of things, being found woke, um, political, positional power. Our culture is obsessed with power, and it comes at us in so many different ways. But our task as a countercultural movement of Jesus is to use whatever privilege we have, whatever resource, whatever advantage we have access to, whatever power you have as a follower of Jesus. We don't use that to, to, um, for our own sakes. Through humility, we use power to serve and come under people. This is the way of Jesus. Money and possessions are also a form of... Um, of idolatry today. Clearly, money drives so much of our life. We are obsessed with money. In some ways, I see within the church a lack of discipline. A, uh, uh, we have been defined by the cultural demands of consumerism and materialism. But Jesus wants, as, as his followers, for us to be stewards of resource, stewards of money and possessions. Those are not bad in themselves, but to live in a way that's not defined by them. And Jesus teaches us to steward our lives, to live simply below our means and to live uh, as a generous reflection of God's love for the world. We have to move from consumerism to generosity. This is the kingdom way. So as you look at these idols, um, power and and sex and sexuality and, and self and all of these things become real to the church. That these are not just topics to repent from, but these are these are actually powerful forces that are are are, um, are in our lives, and God wants us um, to use them in a way that reflects a better way of living, a countercultural community. I might just add one more. That there's another idol that um, we talked about a couple weeks ago in the church of Laodicea. Technology. I think as humans today, we're obsessed with progress and the integration of technology, which has produced, you know, um, a massive amount of entertainment and media and access to information and emails and phones and all the things that are found in our in our phones. And we uh, recognize that technology has taken on forms of addiction in our in our lives, and it's led to the greatest threat, which is distraction and our inability to have attention and pay attention to what God is doing. And I think as followers of Jesus today, we have to be intentional around rhythms that disconnect us from technology and empower us um, to live without being under the influence of these forces. Technology has its place. It's not bad in itself. And I'm thankful for technology. We're doing church in your home because of technology. There's so many great benefits to it, but we must, as a church, not be naive to the powerful force that technology is. And I believe the future church must be intentional with how it integrates technology in everyday life. It can become a threat to your family. It can become a threat to um, your your health and wholeness. It can become a, a threat to your discipleship. These are just some of the idols. Which ones do you struggle with? Which ones are you dealing with currently in your own life? Which ones aren't on this list that 
if we were to have a bonfire as a church and you said, you know what, no, I'm done. I'm done living in this duplicitous way of living where I'm, I'm kind of a Christian over here, but the rest of my life is untouched by Jesus. If you were going to become congruent and integrate Jesus into every area of your life, if he had access to your bank accounts, if he had access to your browser history, if he had access to your social media, your phone, if he had access to your diet, your food, your body, if he had access and lordship over those things, what would you say need to get out of your life? What would you bring here and throw on the fire? What would you burn up and so, what would you burn up so that you could pursue God with greater passion and greater intensity so that your life would be a countercultural movement? And I want to say this because it's so important. We can't do this alone. You see, the Garden Church, we first must be community before we are a countercultural community. We must first say we're in this together because. Um, we're not going to be countercultural for the sake of it. And community in the modern context is simply a disembodied group of individuals that are held together around some common ideas. But biblical community, biblical community is the intentional covenantal relationships of people joined together around a common purpose and mission. We're bound together as the children of God, you and I, whether we like it or not. We're held together for the sake of Jesus' mission, which is to redeem and renew and heal creation. In Garden Church, we are a countercultural community. We are a countercultural community. Where are you going to begin? How are you going to live this in your life? How are you going to change? Stop being a victim to what's happening with everything being shut down. Stop being angry at everyone else. What is the Holy Spirit wanting you to do so that you can be on movement with us? What is it that we're gonna do? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to pour himself out to help us with these particular issues that we face. You see, our current Western context deforms our hearts and lives in a profound, in profoundly destructive ways. Big business, big data, big porn's ability to reshape our inner world is unparalleled in human history. Therefore, the next great awakening, the next renewal, the coming revival must be centered on our hearts being changed by God. It must begin by replacing the pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement with the spirit faith of biblical Christianity. It must offer the renewal of Christ-likeness to those being deformed by our culture in the deepest parts of their hearts. This comes from our friend Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church. So brothers and sisters, may we pray that God would pour out his spirit upon us in our homes right now to help us with the challenges that we are facing, that we are living in in this moment. Let me pray for us. Father, would you pour out your spirit on my brothers and sisters? I just see people gather right now in their homes around devices, longing for this to be reality. I see the cry of our church to experience you. For those who have been beaten up over the last few months by loneliness and isolation, by depression and anxiety. I pray, God, breakthrough would happen, that this month would be the marker of breakthrough in our church, that renewal would come, that you aren't done with us meeting in our homes, that you want us to be fire and passionate and uh, worshipers, and you want us to be a countercultural community, God. So I pray, Jesus, that you would impart to us this 
reality, that wouldn't just be words on a screen or on paper, but that we would be this alternative community, that we would help revitalize Long Beach and the cities that we're in because your spirit poured out. Because your spirit poured out. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us anew in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.